Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Two Abdullahs. It's been a long time and this has been a long time coming. Long time coming for Farid Al-Bahrani. Farid, <laughs> you know what you've done. You know exactly what you did and you were very naughty, naughty. Oh, yeah. Tried to get away with some stuff that you thought you'd get away with. Dishonesty, lying, cherry picking. Now we're going to show, I'm going to show the world what quality of response you did. <laughs> this is going to be a fun show. It's been long over, overdue. Uh, Abdullah Gondal has been working on this presentation, this response for a while now. But all of a sudden, Farid's entire set of videos went offline. It just disappeared because he got a strike. He got scared and he's like, ran into his cave and uh, hit everything because he didn't want to get a second strike, I guess. Uh, unlike the rest of us, we stand behind the content. I don't take down my content, you know, but the content's still there. It's still up and strong because we're not harassing people. We're showing you actual responses. We don't make ad hominems, although sometimes we do. It's kind of fun. But like for the most part, we're, we're focusing on the content, right? And you guys know, you guys are fans of this channel that this is our style. We, we go after like arguments, not people. People sometimes, you know, annoy us and it's, it's fun to poke at them. You know, there's a little bit of drama needed, you know, it wakes people up, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, um, that's, it is what it is. Uh, Abdullah Gondal, how's it going? Hello, everybody. Uh, hope you can all hear me. It's uh, good to be back. It's been a while um, and we're back with a very special series. So this is not going to be just one stream. It's going to be a long series. We're going to be focusing on Farid's response to the Epileptic Prophet series. So just to give you a quick summary, the Epileptic Prophet series aired from like October to November 2021. There were like seven episodes, uh, lasted about uh, 20 hours in length, uh, and we had like hundreds, like hundreds of references, hundreds of hadith, academic papers, videos by experts, neurologists. Now, Farid made like a 40-minute response, followed up by six or seven shorter videos, and I was absolutely shocked and flabbergasted that this guy could go so low in the amount and the type of lying he engages in. It is as if he does not care that he will get caught. So anyways, I went through it and what we are about to do now has never been done in the Dawah scene at this scale. We're going to surgically deconstruct his refutations and show you how he manipulates the evidence to a degree which is so shameful that by the end of this series, Muslims will demand apologies from him for misleading them on an intellectual goose chase. This series is going to be like some, uh, if you ever seen magicians get their magic tricks revealed. Well, Farid's intellectual magic tricks are about to be laid out there. Uh, he's an intellectual scam artist. He's completely an intellectual scam artist. Uh, so. Uh, Already, I have, what, 71 slides. Uh, there's going to be more. Uh, might go up upwards of 100. So what are we going to see today? So Farid will hide my argument, i.e. hide the slides that I make. He will, let's say, if you have five slides pertaining to an argument, he will show only one of them and then uh, claim that's the whole argument. He mis, uh, misrepresents his opponent severely. Uh, we'll see manipulation of videos. The way he edits videos, he actually will jump 10, five minutes at a time, skip multiple pivotal points of what I'm saying, and completely, completely distort. Uh, in fact,
after the point where he edits a 12 minute segment or a 10 minute segment into a one minute segment and then portrays it as that's the whole argument that I spoke. It is absolutely malicious and malintent. And I mean, another idea is like uh, what he does is if you come up with an argument that is, let's say, 10 points and you have eight strong points and two weak points, what he will do, he will only pick on the two weak points and project to his audience as if those are the only points that are used for the argument. This is a very, very dishonest, dishonest approach. Uh, and as we go through, you will clearly see this guy is absolutely confused. He's confusing uh, uh, primary versus uh, secondary sources, and he conflates Islamic history versus actual history. Uh, so without keeping you guys waiting any further, um, I'm thinking, uh, let's get started. Yeah, and I'm going to say Philippe did the same thing with my Dol Kanin video. He did the exact same nonsense. He picks on the weakest points. And then he says he has he he's victorious. He doesn't he he doesn't steel man you by any means. And what we want to do is we always want to steel man our opponents. We want to show the strongest arguments and then knock those <laughs> down. Not pick on some like side points and then say, hey, look, I won the argument, even though you actually didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh Elbix translated memes, thank you so much. Um he's saying uh, I question Gondol, do you think that people care more about faith than facts? It's yes. purely to defend his cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, like by the time you get to the end, you'll be like, yo, this guy barely made a single legible point that was devoid of a lie. There are a few points that were valid. We will get through all of them by the time we get to the end of the show. It's not going to be chronological. It'll be a more topic based. So if you think we're skipping parts of his videos, we're not. We will come back to them at the end. Uh, you'll also see that something that I would do in this slide show is I will leave the timestamps underneath each video. So if you want to verify, you can do that. Whereas what Farid does, he will take uh, literally uh, snippets from part two and then part three, combine them from my series and make it say something absolutely opposite. I don't want that to happen. So for, uh, for fairness, I will put this timestamp below as well. Alrighty. Uh, now, let me know if you guys can see it and we'll begin. Perfect. So this first uh, lie he does is he conflates secondary sources with the uh, secondary sources and primary sources. And the first thing we're going to tackle is his idea that secondary sources do not add much to the conversation. So we're going to watch his two clippings from his video where he's describing secondary and primary sources, especially how secondary sources are useless. And then we're actually going to see what actual academics and research guides state about the benefits of secondary sources. I can think of three main reasons as to why um, someone would use a secondary source instead of a primary source. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, this is what comes to mind. So the first reason why they will use a secondary source instead of a primary source is because a secondary source may include um, a mistranslation or a typo or a mistake somewhere. And that information can be used against Islam. So they're going to all right, uh, first question is, can you guys hear the videos fine? Okay, so people are saying your sound is a little bit far, and I think they mean the microphone. Let me see if I can add the mic settings. So okay. It seems okay. Um, How about uh, the video that was played back? Was the playback okay? Okay, the playback... So for, for some reason, everyone's saying it's hard, a little bit hard to hear you. Not everyone. Some people are saying that. I can hear you perfectly. 
which is kind of weird. Oh, okay. strange. Yeah, it's a tad low, but okay, it's fine. We'll we'll okay. do what we have. Yeah. Perfect. Alrighty. So let me just go back. So anyway, <clears throat> um, here he says the secondary sources do not add much to the conversation. They have mistranslations, typos. Let's go to his second part. Another reason why someone will quote a secondary source instead of a primary source is to overburden you with evidence. So much evidence that you're not going to know how to deal with it. So there are a number of reasons why secondary sources don't really add much more to the conversation. Here's... All right. So now that we've realized that Farid's view on secondary sources is quite uh, cute, where he says that they don't add much to the conversation, mistranslations, they have mistakes. They're basically... Kind of pointless uh, that's the idea he gives and he wants people to think that uh, uh, critics of islam will only use secondary sources to with malintent or manipulating ideas which is actually not the case uh, one thing to note i did skip the cookie example on purpose that he gives in his video because it is a complete red herring as you will see next i can think of three main so we're going to move to the next slide now and here we are uh university of toronto research guide for historians as you can see here on the right side, uh, secondary sources complement primary sources. A secondary source can bring clarification and deeper understanding to a primary source. That is why we're using secondary sources to complement the primary sources. Uh, a historian who has expertise in a specific time period can provide contextual information through a secondary source. If you're researching a subject and you do not know a lot about it, it's a good idea to consult secondary sources. This is not just University of Toronto that says that. Uh, if you go further, you have University of Western Australia, the research guide again. Uh, you see the bottom here. I've highlighted and blown it up here for you guys. Uh, it again says uh, there's a lot of benefits to secondary sources. They provide vital background information. Uh, they inform you of what other scholars have said, uh, and they can be used to support your ideas or show alternate views or alternate views of other scholars. Uh, now, again, we see University of Washington Research Guide. Uh, again, this one on the right side, you can see secondary sources as an interpretation, analysis, discussion, or evaluation of an event that is based on primary source evidence. And secondary sources can add a lot of things such as scholarly discourse or reviews. So as we see here clearly, this idea that, that Farid created secondary sources are completely useless, they're all just full of typos, and that's why going to be using them, that is not the case at all. In fact, Farid failed miserably here, clearly not understanding the benefit and necessity at times of secondary sources. All right, so this is a slide that just talks about why uh, secondary sources can be beneficial. It takes just a very tiny bit of thinking to realize secondary sources can be very, very beneficial. Number one, they may contain scholarly explanations. They may contain other variants or chains, which is very common. They also allow us to understand different points of view. So different scholars and different schools of thought will write about a hadith and how they interpret it. That's very important. Uh, how scholarly view has evolved. You'll see this uh, in Islamic history. A lot of early scholars tend to view something differently. And over a thousand years, the view evolves. And then there's different ratings from different scholars, and then different scholars discuss different theological implications and interpretations of those things. Hence, that's the reason why secondary sources can be of a lot of benefit. But what Farid does is he completely downplays them and creates this weird idea that secondary sources are absolutely useless. Again, it's showing you he does not understand basic research. Now, 
Uh, I'm just going to check the comments, see how it's going. Uh, if the sound was okay for you guys. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Let's get, we'll continue. All righty. Uh, now, the next one here is lie number two. It's conflating historical versus Islamic sources. Now, as we know, Farid is a traditional Muslim, uh, uh, mostly Salafi or Wahhabi style. Uh, so he adheres to a very strict uh, traditionalist view of Hadith. Now, what he does throughout his uh, refutation videos is he forces us or projects the idea that we somehow have to abide by his historical standard, which is quite bizarre. Uh, now, what we're going to do is we're going to see uh, how Farid plays with this historical versus uh, Islamic primary sources, and then we'll go from there. We need to understand we're now in Islamic literature. The main thing that we deal with the hujj upon us, what's binding upon us, is the primary source. Primary source you're familiar with it's the Quran, the Sunnah, the early classical collections of hadith, Bukhari, and Muslim, and whatnot. Now, if someone's going to make a claim against Islam, well, making a claim is the easiest thing to do in the world. All you got to do is just make a claim. But if you want to prove something, then you have to go out of your way and do the research. And the burden of proof is upon you to show this content from some sort of primary reference. Oh, did you know that Muhammad, peace be upon him, used to worship Jesus? Really? Do you have a primary source that states that? Oh, did you know that your prophet allowed cannibalism? Really? Well, do you have a source for that claim? And just by demanding a source, you often end the discussion because most people are too lazy to do the research. All right, so what is going on here? Farid is saying that Quran and Sunnah are primary sources, and then he explicitly says early sources like Bukhari and Muslim. You have to understand that when you actually do research, uh, research a primary source is uh, compiled at the time of the event by primary witnesses or quite recently after the event takes place. Any hadith book that you find are hundred, at least a hundred years removed. To call these things early primary sources is intentionally misleading people, as you will see in the next slide. What Farid does here is almost an equivocation fallacy, where he uses the meaning primary sources in the historical sense but when he uses it for the Islamic sense, it confuses which one he's using or which meaning he implies here. This allows him to build his straw man. He then projects this idea that we have to abide by his standards or the Islamic primary source standards. But if we did, that would be absolutely unacademic and intellectually dishonest. Now, let's see what we actually said. You see here is part one of the epileptic oh, problem series. Yeah, mm -hmm. before you do that. Um, <clears throat> so basically what you're saying is there's two different contrasting approaches. One mm -hmm. approach is the academic approach where you have a certain definition for what's a primary source and what's a secondary source. And this is accepted by academics. Mm -hmm. Then you have another perspective, which is now what we can call the Sunni or the traditional Sunni narrative, which is not a historical method. It's a different, so it uses basically Bukhari and Muslim and it's a, it's a narrative based on what the scholars have built up Muhammad to be. In, in the presentations that you did, that we did, 
it was always we were using their own books, which means we're we're showing we're not showing necessarily what's historical, but what you yourself should accept if you're a Sunni Muslim, correct? Mm -hmm. Exactly. We were trying to tell you that, and we in fact explain this very nuance. And I remember you explicitly said it that the Islamic corpus does not qualify as a historically valid source from an academic point of view. And this was the theme we had throughout the presentation. In fact, we repeated it a few times. We had a dedicated slide to it. We discussed it three, four times. But what Farid does is he skips all of those explanations where we are explaining this nuance and then projects the idea that we were somehow abiding by the Sunni standard the whole time. So with that in mind, as you can see, he's lying. Let's get to what we actually said. Not in Sorry, I'm just going to restart this one. Give me one sec. We need to understand we're not employing just a Sunni view of hadith. In fact, we are trying to employ an overall general view of the Islamic corpus, which includes the Shia, the Sunni, the secular view, and a bunch of other things. So as you see there, clearly this was a slide where we're discussing the authenticity and we clearly explicitly state we're not just using the Sunni view of Hadith, but Farid in, in his little uh, view wants us to or forces us to abide by it. And he hides this part specifically so he can build this slide. Now let's go to the next slide. So what am I talking about that Hadith are not primary sources by historical standards? As you see here, this is a journal article, The Nature of Early Islamic Sources, the Debate Over Their Historical Significance. And in the abstract here, you can clearly see uh, that all the Arabic Islamic texts that have been foundational to the early history of Islam, crucially, these sources cannot be defined as primary sources. They largely started to be written 150 years after the incidents they narrate. Further, there's a lack of archaeological evidence or independent archival records to corroborate these narratives. This is something that is very basic and should have been understood by Farid, but what he did was he completely misrepresented our point of view. And then he says something absurd where he's saying Bukhari and Muslim are early sources. Guy, what are you on? This is a slide where uh, you see all the earliest primary hadith books or primary hadith uh, literature listed by the date that's of author and how many years after he died Muhammad's death. So as you can see, the one of the earliest books you can find that is verifiable, like Mamabu Hanifa, is 135 years after. This here it says Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim were written 238 or 240, so about 200 years after Muhammad at least. The idea that this guy calls that as an early primary source from historical standards is, quite frankly, absurd and laughable. Uh, and you'll see that he will later on call uh, Tabrani. Remember this, he will call this book Tabrani, Rakhswa Tabrani, as a primary source, which is 300 years after Muhammad. So you'll see that Farid is absolutely confused and he doesn't understand how to do research when you're talking about historical sources, but Islamic versus academic approach. Anyways, let's go on to the next one. Now, before we move on further, now that we've established uh, that Farid has issues understanding how research is done, 
we're going to go next. Now, here's where the lies are just completely, absolutely mind-boggling, where he says that I didn't show you these things, but then he skips all the 30 slides after, and I actually did show you those things. I'm actually confused. I'm like, what are you doing, guys? What kind of low-level quality of lying is this? Uh, I don't want to keep you guys waiting. Let's just look at it. I'm going to make use of it. So I took, I found this website, the link is in the bottom. Zaid bin Sabit narrates in that green box. Uh, I wrote down the revelation in the presence of the Prophet. When the revelation came, the messenger of Allah would shiver and shake. Like I said, what we just saw with those patients, he would shiver and shake and sweat would come down from his temples. From his so a question comes to mind. Um, why is he quoting an article on a website instead of quoting the primary source itself? Why isn't he showing... A screenshot from one of those books that he's quoting from. Well, it's because the highlighted sections can't be found in the books that he is quoting. However, by relying on this website, which seems to have some sort of botched translation, he's able to use this evidence against Muslims. And he's like, yo, check it out. It's a Muslim site. Another. Alrighty. <clears throat> so as you see, Farid explicitly claims that all the hadith I showed in that Muslim website. Uh, I never showed them in the presentation. I never showed their screenshots, and I was just using that as to overburden with evidence. This is just the biggest lie ever. I don't understand why he would do that. This is this slide that he was talking about, and we're going to go through these one by one. So here you can see this. this uh, his face would go pale. He found it very hard. He would shiver and shake. He had convulsions. He would faint. Uh, he felt like he was dying, and he would wheeze, and his temples would go red. Keep this in mind. Remember what Farid said, I never showed them to you. Here are two uh, scholars uh, translating the same uh, work of Sayyuti, the same narration which he narrated from Tabrani, where they're clearly saying in Urdu, Aapko shadeed larza lahik ho jata aur aapdar moti ki manand pasina tari ho jata tha which is basically means that you were seized by severe tremblings and sweating like pearls. But he just hid these slides to give this impression that I didn't show them. Move on, it gets worse. His color would change? Yeah, I showed them here. Uh, the Tabrani, the full chain of the Hadith is there. Uh, I showed the headaches in this one as well, like his uh, soul being seized by it, heavy breathing and snorting like lips. And here you see when the way... But then uh, when he would come to him, he'd be seized by trembling and his temples would go red. And these are just a few examples. I showed you a lot more. But the fact that this guy lies with absolutely no shame is beyond me. Why would you do that? You have no care about your credibility. And it goes on again further. Uh, this one again, it says, this is the one we showed about the fainting. And we've showed a lot more about fainting. We'll get back to this one. Here is the Sayyuti book, which is also narrating from Tabrani that when Muhammad got the revelation, he would be like almost fainting. And then bottom here, he's narrating from Ibn Sa'd that when Muhammad would receive a revelation, he would be lethargic, almost as if like a drunkard. Where are these hadiths popping in from, which Farid claims I never showed you or that these don't exist? As you can see clearly that it's very frustrating for me to deal with somebody who lies like like, so terribly. There's absolutely zero uh, integrity. There's no uh, value to this. He's muddling the whole discourse with his nonsense uh, clout-chasing uh, videos. Uh, 
and it keeps getting worse. You, you guys will see, it just keeps on getting worse. All right. Then Farid claims, uh, line number four, uh, that Gondol only showed one primary source. Farid then makes the claim that Tabrani is a primary source. He defines, he himself, on his own accord, said Tabrani is the primary source. I didn't say that. Tabrani is a guy who died, like we saw, 340 years after Muhammad almost. It's, it's absurd to say that he's a primary source by historical standards. Uh, then by Farid's standard, I actually showed more than one primary source. In fact, there are about five or even more. And what Farid just did, he just hid them. He just hid the slides and pretended that I just showed you one primary source. So let's watch this video and let's see. Now, one thing I want to tell you is a lot of the narrations are being repeated, but the point I'm repeating it from different books is to showcase that how many different scholars thought to write this about Muhammad and put this again and again in their books. And this adds to the uh, uh, the authenticity in a way of the narration as well. In any case, I'm just going to go through a few examples um, in order to show you how this idea and, and this method is abused. All right, guys, this is it. This is when we start to make him cry right on. So seized by severe trembling. Next slide. These guys are saying, where are the secondary generalizations? These guys act as if this evidence doesn't exist. They straw man the shit out of you. That's what Farid does. Farid the fraud, Farid the leaker. I mean, whatever. He's known to do this so much. It's it's annoying. It's frustrating. But I gave it to this time. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go deep, get the evidence. So there's no there's no doubt left in people's mind. Right on. Let's go. Let's start. Let's get let's kill this myth of Muhammad. So first off, we have a, a narration uh, here. Uh, Sahih. It says there too, it says Zayd bin Thabin that I used to write down the revelation of the Prophet when the revelation descended upon him, he would be seized by severe trembling and convulsions and severe sweating like pearls. All right, so this quote right here is from Majma' al Bahrain fi Zawa'id al where Al Haythami is quoting Tabarani. So this report here is specifically by Tabarani, and that's it. So Tabarani here is the primary source, and Al-Haythami is the person that's quoting him. This is uh, one narration. Let's go to the next book. We go to the next slide. We have Khasais al-Kubra by As-Suyuti. All right. So in this image, what we have is Suyuti, again, a secondary source, quoting a Tabarani, who was the first primary source in the image that came before this one. This one has the whole chain right there showing you that it is sahih, it is reliable. Mu'ajmal al-Awsat, Tabrani's book, it says, Zayd bin Sabit Nair, that I used to write down the revelation of the Prophet and descended upon him, he would be seized by severe trembling convulsions and severe sweating like pearls. Oh, and here is the primary source, which is the book of Tabarani himself. So finally, this guy has figured out what his primary source is. Next book, we have another one. Nabuwat Muhammad fi al-Qur'an, feverish trembling. Zayd bin Sabid Nari, they used to write on Revelation, seized, uh, seized by severe trembling convulsions. And in the bracket, this author writes the word hama, which means fever. So he adds that feverish trembling to it. And here we have Hassan Liya al-Din Atar quoting al-Tabarani, uh, which is the initial primary source once again. Now we get another one here. We move to slide 104. We have feverish trembling once again. 
And here, finally, we have Ibn Asakir in Tariq Dimashq quoting the same chain from Ahmed bin Amr. All right, so what do we have here exactly? Well, Dr. Jalaldin quoted one primary source and provided three other sources that are quoting that same primary source. Then another source that relies on the same chain again. I personally don't know if he's that ignorant. Um, I know that his sidekick is, well, for sure. All righty. So uh, Farid gives this uh, impression that I only quote this one hadith, and then I just give five different, and I purposefully mislead people into thinking that it's actually five distinct narrations. Funnily enough, unsurprisingly, Farid lied again to you. Uh, as you see, there are multiple primary sources that I showed you throughout the presentation. In fact, they had distinct and even more explicit wording than just the Buraha Hadith. So uh, we had this one. Uh, this one is the one, Safastu uh, Burahan Shadid, the one actually from Tabrani's book. Then we have another one from Tabrani's book. This is a different narration. Then we have Al Waqidi's book, which is a different narration completely. Then we have another book here with the variant, which is a different wording and narration completely. So there's one, two, three, four. Now, Farid, again, like he said, lied to you. Uh, this here on the left you see is from Sahih ibn Haban. Sahih ibn Haban is still considered a primary hadith book collection, if you want. But at this point, I'm confused what standard Farid abides by, honestly. Uh, but from my, if he wants that standard to be held against him, then here you have that it, he was seized by severe convulsions. This wasn't shown as part of the original series, but again, that's another primary source. Uh, and I mean, at, at some point you're like, okay, well, if a hadith appears in Bukhari and Muslim, if you're calling that a primary source, but that same hadith appeared in uh, Musnad Ahmad, well, which one is the primary source then, if I quote any, other, any of the books containing that hadith? So again, this is because Farid is confused about how the standard is being divided by, and he doesn't understand it. Uh, so on the right side, we see here that he showed this slide in the beginning, but he doesn't realize that the narration that is uh, written here is actually a completely different wording than the Buraha Hadith. So I don't know why he's critiquing that and projecting it as if it's the same. Now that we've seen that we have, in fact, more than one primary source, but he's again lied to you, let's go to the next slide. So remember the part where Farid said that uh, Gondol purposefully misled people. He kept repeating the same narration and then gave the impression that these are distinct, different hadith. Guess what? From part three, the same section where I'm apparently misleading people, I am, in fact, giving you six examples here where I'm telling you this is a repeated narration. This is another book, but the same narration. This is a very famous narration repeated in many tafsir. I actually tell you that this is narrated from there, here, but Farid obviously skips all of that just so he could lie once more. And let's play. That I used to write down the revelation of the Prophet when the revelation defended upon him, he would be seized by severe trembling convulsions and sweating like pearls. And this has been graded as Sahih from Tabrani. As you see, I said clearly it is from Tabrani, even though I'm using Suyuti's book, I said it. He claimed I didn't. Again, he shows you half the story, not the full story, so he can construct the lie. Uh, next up, we go to the next slide. 
And we have, again, uh, this is another book, and it says the same narration. He was seized by trembling and severe sweating like pearls. So as you can see, I again pointed out, it's another book, but same narration. But it seems to suggest that I was telling people if it's a different book, it's a different narration. That is not what happened. Slide number 115. The Raymond Shu seized by trembling. This is a, a Surah Duha, I believe. Uh, surah Tafsir. This is going to be a repeating uh, one. This is actually a very famous narration. It occurs over and over again in so many tafsirs. I was just flabbergasted when I found it. Uh, it says uh, that Prophet came with his beard trembling. That whenever the revelation descended upon him, he was seized by trembling. These are explicit words. who means seized. Rada means uh, thunder, trembling. Uh, pretty explicit. Uh, this has a few variants as well, this hadith. So. Let's so I couldn't I couldn't help yeah. but laugh uh, after you're saying all the different lines we have Fazi. So as you see once more, I'm explicitly stating it's repeated over and over again. Uh, but Farid does not want you to know that. Trembling, pretty self-explanatory. And then the next slide is the same guys that Tafsir just he repeats the same narration again. Whenever the revelation uh, descended. And then last two examples. Famous scholar, uh Shaukani, he's very famous, he's also quite recent as well. He narrates the same thing in the, I think, yeah, Surah Muzammil. He heard the voice of the angel and looked upon him, and he was gripped by trembling. Then he uh, ran to his wife saying, Zammiluni, Dasiruni, cover me, cover me. Next up, we have Tafsir al-Munir. And this one, again, repeats that narration twice. So again, as you see, I'm pointing out as we go along that some of them are repetitions in different books by different scholars. just wanted to show you this nuance. Uh, and we're going to conclude this section with one more from Islam Web. Uh, just to show you guys that this again is uh, from Majma Zawaid, and this is the Khasu Baraha and Shadida, the trembling one, the trembling hadith. Bottom right, it says, Rabahu Tabrani fil Ausat, that this is in fact Nirba Tabrani, and this is in fact Allah. All right, so uh, now that we've established that Farid just has this issue with pathologically just lying over and over and over again, and I don't know why he would do that uh, to his about 50,000 followers, then expect to just get away with it. I mean, if you lie so brazenly, you will be caught, and there are going to be consequences to it. Uh, anyways, now let's go to the next slide. I bet I used to write down. Give me one second. All right. Uh, now, we're on to uh, line number five. Uh, this is about a weak hadith. So, Farid accused me in his uh, video that I did not discuss authenticity or I dodged the authenticity question. Uh, Farid actually lies again and did not include slide number four, which we will cover in the next few uh, slides. We also discussed the authenticity problem multiple times, not once, not twice, three times or more, and he still hit it all and projected the idea that we never discussed it. This allows Farid to portray the lie that Gond will never address the issue. And this is just bizarre. Like, why would you lie so explicitly? And the funny thing is, when you watch his actual video, he's always like saying, please return to the original to check it out and verify what they're saying. And when you do, you find basically him a, a hollow puppet. Like, he has nothing of value. Anyways, let's watch his video again. About. Sometimes there are some clear signs that the hadith is not authentic. And what you can simply do is you can ask the person that's using the report against you if the hadith is authentic or not. And some of them, 
they've actually done the research and they actually know that it's a weak report, but they still want to use it against you anyhow. So what you need to do is you need to push them into a corner by simply asking them, are you sure that this report is reliable? And sometimes they'll say something like this. Uh, this is a very interesting narration. I can talk about its authenticity and whatnot, but in line, keeping in line with the other ones. I could talk about authenticity, but I don't want to. Now, another. All right. Uh, so what was going on here? Uh, if you would remember in uh, slide number four that Farid we had the point of corroboration. So we were using this hadith that fit in line and was confirmed by multiple Sahih hadith. Islamic scholars use this idea as well, that if there's a weak hadith being confirmed by Sahih hadith by corroboration, it is okay to use. What Farid did, he hid this whole idea and explanation, uh, and then he projected his lie that we are apparently avoiding talking about authenticity. Uh, so here are three instances. Uh, you're going to have to watch them just so you realize how he lies, how I explained it in part one, part three, part five, and he apparently thinks we never discussed it. Yeah, this slide. So, uh, number one is going to be that, first thing to understand, we're not employing just a Sunni view of Hadith. In fact, we are trying to employ an overall general view of the Islamic corpus, which includes the Shia, the Sunni, the secular view, and a bunch of other things. So, first thing is, Sahih and Mutawadir. If a narration is affirmed authentic by the scholars and is widely reported in multiple chains, it is most likely to be true, so we can employ the usage of that. Now, the second point is convergence of Shia and Sunni corpuses. Now, Shia and Sunni corpuses uh, sometimes fundamentally collide in how they're set up. But if they, despite their differences, converge on some details, then those details are more likely to be true. Uh, that they corroborate each other. And Third point being corroboration on its own. A lot of the times you will see some weak hadith that reaffirm what is found in some sahih hadith. We know that weak hadith are not fake. In fact, they can literally, uh, by virtue of affirmation, prove that they have figments of truth in them. In fact, they can completely be true at times and add details. Uh, so weak narrations, if corroborated by Sahih Hadith, can be used as evidence. And also at times, two a multitude of uh, weak narrations can corroborate each other depending on the frequency. Another thing is scholarly subjectivity, uh, which is that many times scholars will grade a Hadith different. Somebody might call it Hassan Sahih. Somebody might say, oh, this is weak. Somebody might say, this is fake. The other person might say, this is uh, completely authentic. So what we do is we go a case-by-case -case basis and try to find the bigger scholars or the, the, the bigger group of scholars and what they send go by that. Now, the fifth point, which is very, very, very important, why I feel that the descriptions given in the Hadith cannot be conjured up by the followers of Muhammad, was that firstly, these guys are not clinicians or anything. These are uh, laymen in the 7th century who have barely any knowledge of clinical neurology. Uh, Yet these guys describe the events in Muhammad's condition so precisely with such a detailed attention that matches up with modern neurology today that there is no possibility they could have forged this up to the point, as you will see when we progress, the cap grass and all these certain things and how Muhammad's own uh, seizures came about and their descriptions by his fellow companions could not have been faked by anybody unless they knew modern neurology. 
So that tells me that they actually saw a lot of what was going on with Muhammad. Uh, with that aside, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Alrighty, guys. So that was where you clearly see that uh, we, in fact, got into the discussion on authenticity in a lot of detail. Uh, we spent uh, quite a long time. We explained our uh, view on authenticity. And as you can clearly see, our view of the Islamic corpus is not the same as Farid. And this is a critical error that Farid makes, where he tries to pull us down to the Sunni standard. And when we go forward, you will also realize why this is a terrible idea, because the Islamic corpus at times fails from a historical standpoint uh, quite terribly. And if you put all your eggs in the Islamic basket, then you are setting you up for failure. Uh, now, I want to show you a quick dimension of the authenticity uh, thing and the subjectivity of scholars again. I'm show you a little bit of like a write-up I had. We talked about this in detail, so I'm going to quickly go over this. There's going to be the corpus itself, i.e. the uh, Islamic corpus Sahih and Matwatr. If they affirm it, and the convergence of two corpuses, and the corroboration where Sahih hadith are confirming weak hadith, weak hadith are too numerous, and they're confirming each other, then there's scholarly subjectivity. Like, you know, one scholar says this is Hassan, one is saying this is Daif, one is saying this is Sahih, one is saying this is Daif, right? And then you'll see that. So we'll take that into account. And then the last point that I was talking about was uh, scientific affirmation. How can 7th century Arabs know detailed symptoms of epilepsy that we just discovered in 1970? It's impossible. The only way that makes sense is they actually saw the thing come up in front of them and they described it. And that's how we know about it. Uh, but uh, that was just a quick uh, refresher on. That was from part three and a quick little one from part five as well. Just so you know that we explained it three different times. And despite that, he hit all those three times to give the impression that we shy away from discussing the authenticity problem. Yeah. So is it authentically reported that the Maha Prophet of Maryam and Asiya uh, there is a number of chains. Some scholars, such as Al-Hakim, consider to be Sahih. Other scholars don't. Ibn Asakir narrates the hadith in his famous book, but others don't. Uh, now, interesting thing here, and this is going to tie back into something we've been talking about throughout, and it ties up to the authenticity of the Islamic corpus. One thing to mention is that although a hadith may be classified as being weak due to the chain of narrators, weakness does not mean that it is false and untrue. So even if we were to take the position that the hadiths are weak, that weakening of the narration does not negate that the reality of what was mentioned possibly being true. And this is something uh, that I'd let the scholars, uh, Sheikh Rami Nisur made the point. Uh, and I just read what he said. And that's important because weak hadith, according to what Sheikh Hamza uh, Yusuf, is like, they're not like a fail. They're like, B, B plus grade. And, you know, Hassan Hadith are like A and the Sahih are like A plus. And he came up with this idea, especially when they're being corroborated and corroborating each other in a number of chains. And then we have other scholars considering it too. But what we want to learn here is why is Muhammad trying to marry? All right. So uh, with those three explanations aside, you can clearly see uh, our approach. Uh, on the Islamic corpus was way more nuanced than Farid, and Farid just led people on a wild goose chase by going down these rabbit holes trying to hold us to the same standard. 
It's just pure deceit. Now let's go to the next slide. Yeah, yeah. This a little yeah. bit. All right. Uh, here we are. Lie number six. Uh, and this is again about authenticity. Uh, so Farid will say that, you know, oh, it says it's not Sahih. It appeared in a Sahih compilation. And then he makes the mountain out of a molehill or is what you call as being pedantic. But then he also hides our slides or the explicit part where we explicitly discuss the authenticity of that very said narration but he seems to not show it to people, which is again, just pure lying and deceit. And let's watch. With footnotes like this guy. So first off, we have a, a narration uh, here, uh, Sahih. Now, first of all, it doesn't even say Sahih. It says, meaning that a part of the report can be found in a Sahih compilation. When we look at the footnotes, remember guys, the importance of footnotes, we find that the editor points out that Ahmed bin Muhammad bin Nafi' is unknown. All right, so as you saw that he showed you one of the uh, footnotes and he says that one of the author is saying that he's weak, therefore this hadith is weak. Funnily enough, he didn't show you the part where the actually bigger scholars actually say explicitly that this is in fact reliable. And guess what? We showed it. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here's the first one. Word again. Let's go next. And now we have Mwajim al-Awsat. And here we have it from Stabrani's book. And this has been graded as Sahih. In fact, the whole chain is in front of you if you want to look at it. Uh, same hadith, he talks about Zaid bin Sabi narrated when the revelation descended upon him, he would be taken by severe convulsions and sweating like per And now let's watch the next one where he explicitly hit this slide where we explicitly talk about it being authentic. And we're going to conclude the section with one more from Islam Web, uh, just to show you guys that this again is uh, from Majma Zavaid and this. The trembling one, the trembling hadith. Bottom right, it says, That this is in fact, and this is in fact. So as you see clearly, not only did I tell you explicitly two different times, in fact, that it is uh, Sahih, I brought you three different varying references, but Farid shows you one and projects this whole lie that it is not. Real. He points out that he will discuss the authenticity later, but he doesn't really do that. Uh, word again. I'm going to go next. All right. Uh, now we're on the next slide. And this is, again, the same uh, same hadith of Asuhu Buran Shadida. You can see the note here. Go down here. You see that he narrated from Dabrani and that this is indeed reliable. So, what are we getting to now? By this point, you would have realized this guy just cannot stop lying. It's a problem. It's it's it's, it's, it's absurd and it's ridiculous. Uh, so Farid has layers to his lies. First, he wants you to think that we're not aware of the grading of the hadith. Secondly, he's pedantic by claiming why did Gondal not say appeared in a Sahih compilation and just called it Sahih? Because we did discuss this already later on in the other slides. So you should have shown that as well, to be fair. Uh, but he did. Uh, third, he creates an illusion as if I'm, I'm hiding something by not reading the full screenshot, not realizing that it's been shown as part of the full presentation. While he's trying to accuse me of hiding stuff, as you've seen so far, uh, he can't make a single point without 
completely misinterpreting, distorting, and manipulating, and lying about his opponent's arguments. Uh, the bickering about authenticity is a misdirection by Farid as we are talking from two completely different point of views. I'm providing you these ratings for the Muslim viewers, their perspective, but uh, we aren't bound by that. And that's what we've explained a few times in the series, but Farid just does not want to accept that idea. So now what's important here, what we're gonna get to, Farid does not accept weak hadith, but Islamic scholars more qualified than Farid do. Farid does not want his viewers to be aware of this nuance, and he purposefully hides it. So we'll get into that. Here we are, uh, nuances in hadith authenticity and acceptance. This is a paper, uh, it's an official academic paper published uh, on Mursal Hadith and its authenticity. Now, why is this important? Because if you read here, uh, this wasn't part of the series, by the way, I just added it externally now. Uh, according to traditionalists, a hadith can only be considered reliable when its sanad offers an unbroken series of credible and veracious authorities till the Prophet which is Farid's view. He's a traditionalist. Uh, he wants an unbroken chain to the prophet. But if the narrator between the successor and the prophet uh, is omitted from a given isnad, the hadith is morsel, or it's uh, attributed to an unspecified companion. Problem is, the traditionalist like Farid will say this hadith is a broken chain. It can't reach the uh, prophet. Therefore, it's unacceptable. But when you actually look at the scholarly view, especially the early scholars of Islamic history, and these are not nobodies, I'm talking about Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, Abu Hanifa, Ahmed and Hanbal. As you can see on the right side, their views on these hadith were quite dramatically opposed to Farid at times. Uh, so the opinion held by Imam Malik and all Maliki jurists is that the mursal of a trustworthy person is valid as proof and justification for a practice, just like a Muslim hadith. Okay, here you see this view has been developed to such an extreme that to some of the Maliki jurists, the Mursal is even better than the Muslim Hadith. Do you understand why we were talking from a much, much broader perspective of the Islamic corpus than Farid? Uh, and then we have Imam Abu Hanifa holds the same opinion as Maliki jurists that he would accept Mursal Hadith, whether or not it's supported by another Hadith. Uh, then we have Imam Ahmed oh. Hanbal. He would accept Mursal and Azudaif Hadith if nothing opposing them is found regarding a particular issue, preferring them to Qiyas. Then they'll go on how he so, Hadith. Can I say, can I add something here? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so by the way, I'm going to say that um, even this is even more strict when we're talking about Islamic jurisprudence. But when we're just talking about Muhammad in general, they're not that strict. We're talking about, even when they talk about hell and heaven and, you know, the minders of faith and encouragement to do good deeds. Like I, I wrote a summary of Jonathan Brown's article on this. Islamic scholars, are, it's kind of funny. To me, it's funny. But like Islamic scholars are more strict on how you do wudu and wash your hands and all of those rules but not as strict when it comes to like, you know, those other things. So this is silly to bring this up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Islamic mm -hmm. scholars accept these things. Exactly. Right? But a, yeah. And the, one of the other issues is, is in this same paper, whoever, whoever wants to read it, it's a very, very good paper. Well, you see the evolution of how the scholars view the Hadith. So earlier scholars that are basically giants of 
Islamic jurisprudence from three of the four major schools would accept this disease, but as later scholars came about, they developed a more stricter and stricter version uh, or view of the, the Hadith corpus. So what I'm trying to say here again is there's a lot more nuance than the Wahhabi version, which Farid wants to abide by. I'm not going to abide by the Wahhabi view of the Hadith corpus. That is just absurd, especially when I, from the beginning and the get-go through the presentation, we were showing Sunni, Shia, and a bunch of other secular scholars writing about Muhammad's uh, life and epilepsy. So again, oh, I just, hmm? they don't want to admit, uh, like you said, the Wahhabi way is to kind of make it sound like it was always this way, but that's not true. For the, for like a thousand years, the Sunni Muslim scholars were way more easygoing with Hadith. And as time went on, they became more and more rigid. And this Wahhabi movement or the Salafi movement became this big thing that now they became like ultra strict <laughs> for the longest time. And by the way, again, if you're going to be ultra strict and you're going to be, you know, then you're going to throw out a lot of the things we know about Muhammad. You can't even probably use a seerah then, but I'm pretty sure Farid accepts the seerah more or less. It's just now that he's trying to do this in order to get out of the bad parts, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, we will get to this other in the in the later parts. He said that Kitab al-Maghazi is uh, in fact unreliable. So we will actually analyze the claim, the historicity of the claim, or why was he labeled as unreliable? In fact, he was historically valid. It's just that the muhaddithin abided by the hadith standard and Vakadi is like no i don't abide by that standard i'm going to use different standards so he was criticized by these traditionalists but to a lot of scholars he is still viewed as a reliable source of historical information yeah uh, but again we'll get to that later uh and just in, showing... term, in, in just in terms of um in terms of the wording we're using, I, I prefer not to call Salafis traditionalists, even though they consider themselves traditionalists. Yeah. But like just to differentiate the two groups. But yeah, anyways, it doesn't that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. All right. So with that aside, let's go to the other one. Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, Farid uh, was talking about the experts we used in the series. Farid, firstly, uh, isolates Dr. Dede Kurkut and then claims that he's a nobody because it's an anonymous author. Watch what he does. It's so, so funny. Now, in the next slide, uh, we're going to go analyze some uh, quick uh, more uh, cases by Dr. Dede Kurkut, where he says that uh, this one guy, case number one, was literally in heaven when he returned home to his wife but <laughs> what, what are these like these cases he's describing he's talking about actual cases of people of okay yeah so these are all uh, taken from uh, either his own patients or the journal or literature on neuroscience from hey uh, so who is this dd that's speaking about his own patients well it turns out that Didi is just a pen name and we have no idea who this person actually is. Now, he claims to be someone with a degree in religion and someone that's a certified neurologist, but, I mean, what's the proof of that? At the end of the day, it's just his claim and no one else's. And are we going to trust someone's claim that he's an authority when the only proof that he's an authority is his own claim? Well, that's not really how Alrighty, so this is this is hilarious. This is absolutely hilarious. Uh, Farid says that all the cases that we mentioned from Dr. Dede's book were his own patients and that we can just discard it. 
In fact, the whole point was that he was referencing the original papers in the footnotes. Most of the cases that you do see in this book are not his own, but are from uh, medical papers that he lists right there. This thing was explained by me, and this question was explicitly asked by a viewer, and I showed it, I pointed it out, look at the footnotes, they're right there. Uh, but Farid, for some reason, just uh, doesn't understand that you have to look at the footnotes, he's referencing it. Ah. Now, another thing is, Farid gives the impression that we only have Dr. Didik Rukat, which is false. We, in fact, had Dr. Abbas, Dr. Matthew Woods. Dr. Abbas not only has his whole book that we didn't showcase, we also we showed him on video multiple times talking about Muhammad's epilepsy. In fact, most of what Dr. Didi says is found in other books written about Muhammad by other verified neurologists. So this, uh, he also omitted uh, Dr. Ali Rizmi that uh, joined us in the episode two. It's getting to a point where his lies are becoming absurd. Uh, has, it's, 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 a, it's really ridiculous. Uh, so I'm going to go to the next slide and show you what I mean. This is the cases. This is the screenshot from Dr. Didi's book. As you see, each one in the footnotes has the paper listed. I don't know why he would make this big blunder and say that, oh, Dr. Didi's a nobody. Now, what's worse is he had malintent when he made this claim. But he knew exactly what he's doing because guess what? I explained it explicitly in the series. Listen to this. Of Muhammad, this experience that he had identical to patients that we have in the literature. Uh, why should we believe those sources? Uh, these sources actually have the footnotes in the bottom, and in the end of the slides, I actually have the original papers uh, attached as well. So you can just access the, the main studies uh, if you don't believe me. As you see again, uh, Farid just straight up lied. He didn't show this part, but I'm telling you, look at the footnotes, they're referenced right there. Uh, and funnily enough, uh, this was uh, the psychotic prop in the original presentation I did about two plus years ago, in which we discussed the same paper with similar cases in an older video, uh, to which Farid already made a response to. But he seems to have forgotten that the cases Dr. Dede is coding can be found in previous content that I have shown from the paper itself. So uh, let's check that out. All right. now. Here we come to a paper. Now, this uh, this paper has a lot of case studies. Like, I don't even know, like 15, 16. Uh, we will go through just a few. And what I want to get to is like post-sectal psychosis and how epilepsy can literally lead you to not only seeing angels, but believing in God, like Muhammad. And one of the case studies on the right side of the right picture is extremely similar to Muhammad. So... Here, we'll just go through one of them. How did the patient believe that he was in heaven? He would appear to have depersonalization. He maintained that God had sent it to him as a means of conversion. He's a new man, but not. He saw God, epilepsy. Another, oops, sorry about that. Another patient said that a 14-year-old boy, after a seizure, saw the good God and the angels and heard a celestial fanfare of music. Quite interesting. Then we have more cases where, like I said, God had given him a mission to reform the world by law, which is the Messiah complex and chosen by God, like Muhammad. Virgin Mary, who commanded him, so he saw angels in the Virgin Mary. And then there's this one where patterns, which included a vision of Christ coming down from the skies, almost like Muhammad saying, Christ will come down with his hands on the angels at the end of the time. Mm -hmm. 
Isn't it interesting that each one of these found revelations in the cultural context, either the Virgin Mary, I know, it was Allah, the God of Abraham, who, you know, apparently there was Jews and Christians there and he was traveling Mm -hmm. so much, he was a merchant. It's funny how they always managed to, always, (laughs) like it's very rare to find someone that was like, aliens talk to me and they become successful. Yeah. Something related to the cultural (laughs) view, right? Yeah. What's interesting is like if if you were to read these uh, snippets, you can find literally every single symptom traced back into Muhammad's life. Like I'll give you one quick example. Like one of this person had a state of ecstasy in which the victim sees the heavens opens, hears God speaking. Right? There are direct hadith where Muhammad would come running and like tell the people, I God opened literally, no joking. We will see that later on. God opened a gate in heaven and was boasting about your ummah to the angels. Except for exact identical ones, right? Now, what's also is like uh, that mystical delusional experiences were remarkably common in epileptics. Coming to the second screen, this is very, very important to understand this. When Muhammad would get his revelation, he would have smacking of the lips. Okay, this is we will get to all of these. I'm just gonna point them up beforehand as well. Now, what I'm trying to say is sometimes she, she, that patient, had a frightened feeling in the stomach before the attack. This is called epigastric rising. Muhammad had this when in Ibn Asak's uh, Sira, you read that when he was five or six years old, his. All right. So we get the point that we discuss these papers, these uh, things in detail. And don't worry, we will get to the chest splitting uh, again. And you will see how Fari does not understand uh, neuroscience at all. And in fact, he doesn't understand what the hell we're talking about. He thinks hypnopompic seizures are just dreams. So it's, it's hilarious. Uh, but as you see, we just wanted to show you that the references from Dr. Dede's cases can be traced back to original medical papers. And Farid is just projecting this idea that he's the only expert that Gond will show they're freaking just rejected. It's just complete lies. All right, Muhammad now, here we go. All right, so what did Farid hide? Uh, the other experts. Uh, we had Dr. Abbas, like I said, on video so many times during the presentation. We have his whole book that I didn't show you in the original Epileptic Prophet series because we already had him on video. But I do have it, and it will be featured in this Takiya of Farid response series. We then had Dr. Ali Amjad Rizvi, then we had Dr. Matthew Woods, and then we had Dr. Didigur. So, uh, and then we had Dr. Ali Sina as well on top of that. So despite all of this, Farid kind of like isolates uh, uh, the day and then projects this whole idea that all the cases he's coding are from just his own patients. Ah, now this one's where it gets really interesting. Now we're going to get into a part of the presentation where you're about to see something so so, so funny where Farid just does not understand synonyms or how basic English works. Uh, and it's, it's just funny where he just does not know what he's talking about. So let's start. Webster. It says, uh, definition of paroxysm, a fit, attack, or sudden increase of recurring symptoms of the disease, convulsion. Convulsed in the paroxysm of an epileptic. Now, the term paroxysm or any Arabic equivalent cannot be found in classical lexicons that Lane is quoting. Instead, Taj al-Arus, which is quoting al-Asma'i, um, al-Sihah, um, associated al-Buraha with severity and with fevers. We find the same in al-Qamus al-Muhiq and al-Asas. 
the other sources that Lane is referring to. So where did paroxysm come from? It is Lane's interpretation of the term. Then, all right, so we saw this, that Farid thinks that uh, paroxysms do not mean severe fevers. Ironically, uh, he also downplays a scholar's interpretation of the severe fever being paroxysm. And the funny part is that paroxysms, in fact, do mean severe fevers with chills. Uh, and there's a concept or a thing called febrile seizures uh, that just Farid doesn't understand. He doesn't understand this idea and it's just bizarre like if you don't understand the neuroscience then at least stop making videos about uh, like this uh so here uh first up we have febrile seizures uh in medical literature and just on the left side you can see febrile seizures are the most common paroxysmal episode again that's what i wanted to highlight here uh then on the right side we see Symptoms and signs of how to prevent febrile seizures. Febrile seizures are a sign of potentially seizure, medical problem if it happened in adults. Signs and symptoms of febrile seizures include fever. Severe fever leads to uh, a seizure. This is a very well-known thing. I don't know why he doesn't ask his own cousin that, who's an epileptologist. He can explain this to him. Uh, and then after this, it goes on that the person may then make a moaning sound, unusual sound, become stiffened, may not be responsive, and lots of other symptoms that align with Muhammad. So as you can see, the medical literature here, Dr. Charles Patrick understand that fever and seizures are related. Febrile seizures are and paroxysm are, are related. Then we come up to the definition of paroxysm. Uh, and as you can see, paroxysm here, a paroxysm can be medical too, like when an illness suddenly attacks and you get symptoms like chills and a fever right away, i.e. an attack, a sudden attack of severe fever. On the middle here, we see again, paroxysms are sharp episodes of high fever accompanied by chills and rigors. But he actually does not understand the meaning of paroxysm. In fact, he's so lost where Lane, as a scholar, is writing it in the English dictionary saying that, dude, it does mean paroxysm. But he's like, no, nah, it does not mean paroxysm. Okay. Uh, in the Cambridge dictionary here, uh, paroxysm, in suddenness, intensity, and periodicity. There is a close analogy between malarial fever and inebriate paroxysm. So again, they're talking about paroxysms and fever being linked. And severity of fever or a severe fever can literally be called an attack of paroxysm. This is something that Farid doesn't realize. Now, what's worse is I explained this thing that people back in the day would use the wording severe fever to mean paroxysm and to allude to febrile seizures or a phenomenon that would be similar to that. Not once, not twice, but three times. Farid omitted all those three explanations and then comes up with this. Let's watch it. of the ordinary and perhaps you saw the angel in the form it was created as he was conveyed about himself elsewhere. It was also severe upon him because he wanted to memorize it and understand it despite being a continuously disturbing sound. And for that reason, his color would change and his sweat would exude and his state would afflict him similar to that one afflicted with fever. Fevers in the past, normally when mentioned with epilepsy, are associated with febrile seizures, as in when you have a very high fever, you are very likely to have seizures. 
And this would be a common theme that they will use the word feverish, trembling, and fever-like state to describe a convulsive state as well. And had it not been that God sent in them, he would not have been able to bear it. Why? So as you see, I explained it once that paroxysms, severe fever can be been in words used historically to allude to this, but uh, but he just hides that part. Trembling, Zaid bin Sabit said he would be seized by severe trembling and convulsions, but in the bracket, this guy adds the word Hama or Hama, I think, and which means fever. So another thing to remember is that when these people are living in the seventh century, a lot of the times when they say high fever or a sudden attack of fever, what they're describing is a febrile seizure or a convulsive kind of shivering state. Because when you get a high fever, you have chills and you start shaking and shivering. And then you also sometimes break out into suds. So that's what these people are describing as well as a synonym or a parallel description to go along with just the violent convulsions. It's feverish state or severe fever gripping. All right. And we're going to move to the next slide. The ordinary. So uh, now we are here uh, about the paroxysm thing still. What Farid does is right after the Lane's uh, interpretation, he then quickly edits the next slide out, or he never shows, he only shows part two, but never shows the part three where we talk about it again with additional material. So let's see. That's true. It says, uh, definition of paroxysm, a fit, attack, or sudden increase of recurring symptoms of the disease, convulsion, convulsion in the paroxysm of an epileptic. Now the term paroxysm. So you see he clipped the video right there, but guess what? What did I uh, tell you? He skipped the slide. Uh, so let's see. The next slide, right after when he cut the video, was going into more detail. Another dictionary that affirmed Baraha equals paroxysm. But Farid did not want you to see that. Again, we will look at that now. Uh, pardon my pronunciation. I might make mis uh, some minor mistakes in the Arabic. It's Boraha, or which translates to, if you look on the left side, from Lane's Lexicon. It's a classic Arabic dictionary. And it says, a paroxysm used in this sense by modern physicians. Uh, the um, distress of mind arising from oppression caused by inspiration of revelation, such as said to have affected the prophet. What's ironic is this guy, he's giving Muhammad as the example for the definition in the dictionary. And he says, but most probably a paroxysm of that species of catalepsy, which physicians term ecstasy. Occurring in a tradition, you say of one suffering from fever when it is intense. The paroxysm or severe fit has befallen him. On the right side, just to give people an idea what the word paroxysm means, this is from Merriam-Webster, and it says that normally it's actually used quite a few times as a synonym for the word convulsion, and you can see how it's being given literally uh, convulsed in the paroxysm of an epileptic seizure as an example and definition again. Now we're going to go to the next slide where we have another dictionary just to confirm that this is not me making this up. Is this one again also translates that in the bottom half you see as a fit or a paroxysm. Uh, what uh, this is doing is affirming that I am not making this up. This is in the dictionary. This is precise terminology and you'll see later on that there'll be two or three <clears throat> muftis and scholars who will affirm this translation as well. So as you clearly saw, I had an extra slide. And if you notice that uh, he plays it from part two, but doesn't show the actual longer discussion in the next part. 
this is just completely pure deceit at this point uh, it's wait till what you guys are about to see next <sighs> all right now uh, we're still talking about paroxysm. So Farid alleges that Gondol translated paroxysm as convulsions and that every time the word Buraha appears, that is translated as convulsions. There are two lies. Gondol did not claim to translate the word at all. In fact, they were attributed to multiple different independent scholars. B, Gondol clearly used and showed the alternate translation on multiple occasions, which we will see in the next few slides. Let's start with Farid's video first the other sources that Lane is referring to. So where did paroxysm come from? It is Lane's interpretation of the term. Then Dr. Jalaluddin used the English dictionary to link paroxysm with convulsions. And because of this, every time the word buraha shows up in the hadith, he's claiming that this means convulsion. My response to this again, simply, in classical dictionaries, the term buraha never is associated with convulsion. Case closed. All right, uh, now let's see what we were saying. So Farid is just completely attributing to me making this whole translation up. And uh, he, I'm, uh, whenever I see the word, I link it with the English dictionary. I'm doing. That's not the case. There's Lane who did that. Uh, you'll see in the next coming slides how many more scholars say that Muhammad did need at paroxysms. Let's see what he actually hid. I showed, in fact, two uh, different scholars uh, who were translating the Suyuti's narration from Tabrani, where they say that Muhammad, the word, they translate the word Buraha as convulsions, and there's two independent scholars. And I attribute the translation to them. And this is because they understand that severe attack of severe fever implies that. Why would scholars do that? But either, on the other hand, attributes the translation to me. I never did the translation. This is the problem where these lies are so uh, so frustrating that you cannot have, you, he's not even uttering a single sentence without having some form of deceit wound up into it. Let's watch. As well. Now, here we see Khasais uh, al-Kubra by Soyuti on the left in the Arabic, and you see the same phrase again, and on the top right part, you see an Urdu scholar translating it. And we'll get to his name in a little bit. But just to show you that this is not my uh, translations. These are actual scholars. And I'm going to read this in Urdu. Uh, he says, Hazrat Zaid se rivayat hai. Inho ne firmaya ke jab Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ki wahi likha karta tha. Jab aap par wahi nazil hoti to aapko shadid larza lahik ho jata. Aur aap dar moti ki manand pasina a jata. Phir jab ye kafiyat rafa ho jati. Nabi Kareem, Basically, the translation is that I used to write the revelation for Muhammad when the uh, Vahi, the revelation was descending upon him. And this is explicit. In the Urdu language, there is very few words. And this is the most explicit, synonymous way of describing an epileptic seizure. Shadid larza lahik ho jata. The word larza is literally the word for. Uh, Convulsions. If you want to look it up, you can back translate it. It's almost synonymous with calling somebody epileptic. Uh, on the bottom right, I have shown the uh, full in, full version of it in Sahil Bukhari, just so you know that this actually has a longer version, which shows that the tie breaking is uh, is nothing uh, anomalous or miraculous. 
Now, once we have established that, we're going to go and find out who is doing these translations, like which is this scholar, like who wrote this about Muhammad, right? So we go to the next slide. Exactly, as you can see, the uh, Urdu speaker, uh, he can confirm here. It is the most, like if anybody would say, oh, what describe an epileptic seizure, the go-to word would be that he was having larza or like. All right. Now we're going to find out who is uh, doing the translation. So we have Khasaif al-Kubra, it's the same one. But on the right side, if you see in the middle, I have actually put the main interpage of the book, which gives the name of the person doing the translations. So this original book was written by Soyuti uh, way back, I think, 16th, 15th century. And then this has been translated by Maulana Muhammad Abdul Ahad Qadri. And it has been proofread by Muhammad Farooq Siddiqui, right? And they have used the word larza, where it says, Zaid bin Sabin narrated that I used to write down the revelation of the Prophet when the revelation defended upon him, he would be seized by severe trembling convulsions and sweating like pearls. And this has been graded as Sahih from Tabrani. Uh, now we're going to go to the next slide. And I'm going to now converge two independent scholars who exist completely independent of each other, translating Suyuti's Khasayas al-Kubra about, I think, 15, 16 years apart. And they both translate that same word as larza, as convulsions. How could two muftis or these scholars converge on the same translation? I'm definitely not making this translation that Muhammad, in fact, did have these convulsions. So you see here on the left side, uh, the name of the translator, Hazrat Al-Hajj Mufti Sayyid Ghulam Moinuddin Naimi Rahmatullah and then Nazrasani Jaldawal, Hazrat Allama Shams Barelvi Rahmatullah. And the proofreading in Urdu is done by Hafiz Ahmad Raza Attari Damat Barakatuhumul Aliya. And the CRB Barat and Haf. Anyway, you get the point that these are the scholars that were involved in the production of this composition, and they translated it as Muhammad having straight up uh, violent convulsions, trembling when he got the revelation. Uh, so as you clearly heard, I'm making the point pretty clear that this is not my translation. Farid doesn't show that part and literally seems to project the complete opposite of what I actually said. And this is this is just, I don't understand how to even describe why would you lie or misrepresent your opponent's arguments such poorly and such so badly. Uh, now, let's go to the next slide, and we're going to see what he, else he has in stock. So, he says that every so, time... Sorry? Yeah, I was going to say, like, he actually then has a problem with the Islamic scholars who translated it. Mm -hmm, exactly. Like, he should ask the muftis and the Mawlanas, and you'll see why. Okay. The other thing is, in the next few slides we'll come across, is there's a lot of context to when you translate a word like that. Because uh, if there's other hadith that are saying that his uh, feverish state had the component of trembling... Then when he's getting sudden attacks of fever, the scholar will know how to translate that word within that context. That is why secondary sources can be very important for you to understand different points of views from different scholars and get contextual ideas. This was the nuance we came up with, but what Farid does, as you can all see, is, is, is just a mountain of lies and misrepresentations. Uh, but anyways, <clears throat> we come to here. Uh, the alternate translations that Farid hid and lied about, uh, where the word Buraha is mentioned, you call 
here. I translate as the intense distress pangs of revelation. And I put paroxysm in the bracket. And the next slide, 105, uh, we again translated is intense distress or pangs of revelation. The paroxysm is in the brackets. From Biharul Anwar, from Majlisi, here again, uh, we translate the word Al-Baraha means intensity, and from it comes the hadith intense paroxysm seized him. And in the bottom here, again, he said the prophets taught, sorry, uh, about the same thing on the right side by Hashia Kununi. Uh, we again see from intense distress pangs of revelation. As you can see, I am providing the alternate version of the translation as well. So the idea that I single-handedly focus on that one translation is again an explicit lie from Farib. Uh, let's just keep going because the lies just keep getting worse. Now, like I said, if a scholar mentions uh, trembling and then puts the fever right next to it, you understand the context and why those scholars translated it like this. So here we have Hashim Oyuddin Sheh. And what he does here, he's right, that he was seized by trembling and fever. We have a report that says that. And that is why, again, secondary sources are important. But he doesn't understand this or does not want you to know this point. Uh, in fact, uh, apart from uh, those things, we have other secondary sources that mention Muhammad's feverish trembling explicitly. And you have Haikal here. And I showed this in the original presentation. This isn't a primary source by any standard, but uh, he's still a very famous scholar. Uh, and you can see here, it says, uh, at times the high fever gave him convulsions. So when Muhammad will be talked about uh, he had attack of Burah and Shadid, a severe attack of severe fever. You can clearly see that with this context in mind, it makes sense to translate them sometimes as convulsions. Uh, on the right side here again, uh, we see uh, he entered the house of Khadija and asked her to wrap them up in blankets. She could see that her husband was shivering as if struck with high fever. Those people, like I said, would use high fever as a synonym for shivering is being alluded to here. This was shown in the presentation and Farid hit it again. Uh, and now to the end, uh, I'm gonna explain the third time where high fever equals to convulsion, but Farid hides it again. At this point, his guys become a sore joke of the refuter. Like, get your act together. You can't stop lying. As Muhammad entered his house, he asked Khadija to wrap him in blankets. She could see that her husband was shivering as if struck with high fever. A lot of the times you'll see high fever is sometimes used synonymously with convulsions or trembling and shivering. Uh, when he calmed down, he cast toward his wife the glance of a man in need of rescue and said, Oh Khadija, what has happened to me? So Muhammad again is helpless, is confused, and is asking his wife for help. And that he feared that his mind had finally betrayed him. So Muhammad thinks that he is going insane. And lastly, uh, you see that this is to mention that at times the high fever gave him convulsions. So this scholar is writing again that sometimes Muhammad would experience what we call febrile seizures. They are distinct from epilepsy, but this again back then would be understood as them just describing a epileptic fit 
which they would describe as a fever uh, attack of high fever uh anyway all right so uh we saw another video of uh farid uh, which he hid where i explained why high fever would be implying convulsions and this is again from dr hussein heckel's book and why secondary sources might be important and i see this meme uh the arabic translated means this comment that he says i grew up in the middle east and i remember specifically that our religion teacher talked about muhammad shake and shiver going to a state of trance uh, when he got the revelation no one disputed uh again people like farid who try to find snippets and lie will refute uh, will dispute it but he's absolutely right uh, in fact mufti abu lais admitted to it as well as a mufti that there are indeed uh, Hadith that say explicitly Muhammad was shivering and shaking. This is not news, and this is not new either, but let's carry on. Experience as Muhammad entered. So, uh, another thing about paroxysms is there anybody else who talked about the paroxysm of Muhammad, either a, another scholar? And we do see Theodore uh, Noldek, uh, he says uh, in his book here. <clears throat> Uh, talking about Muhammad's revelation. It is related that when Muhammad received the revelation, he had a serious attack, foaming at the mouth, his head drooping and his face turning pale or glowing red. He screamed like a young camel. Perspiration broke out, even though it was wintry. This attack, to which we could add still other indications, al-Bukhari and al-Waqabi called a paroxysm of a fever. And look at the word right there, buraha, paroxysm of a fever. It's another scholar. Again, I mean, Farid is the biggest scholar. He's the uh, Sheikh al-Islam at this point. He can do whatever. Uh, but what I'm trying to show you that this guy is lying to his teeth without any shame. And he's just leading his followers in a wild, like I said, a goose chase. Uh, but let's carry on. Uh, so uh, I want to take a little break and take some comments and any any other uh, things Samir has to add before we get into this line number 12, where Farid not only is refuted by Yasser Qadi, he ends up refuting himself. It is absolutely hilarious. Uh, but yeah, let's see. Uh, anything else you want to add, Samir? Before we yeah, so Arabic um, translated meme says, I grew up in the Middle East and I remember specifically that a religion teacher talked about Muhammad shaking and shivering and going to a state of trance when he got the revelation. No one disputed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, Mufti Abulais mentioned that before too. Any other comments? Uh, we also have a super chat from A. Jensen. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And um, no, most of the comments, uh, you know, wh why? Um, so you can maybe you can talk about this a bit. Why we spend so much time defending your original vid? You, all your viewers know Mr. Gondal's research is second to none. Do you want to? Do you want to explain what your motivation is? Uh, one of the reasons is like when you're making uh, like a long series, like a 20 hours long and whatnot, right? Uh, people like Farid are going to capitalize on it. I, you, they could do it for clout to get more followers. They'll make snappy, like you see videos with like uh, uh, malintent, malicious editing, hiding the argument just to get views and popularity on their own. And they basically are writing the clout thing, right? Like the epilepsy argument has been gaining traction and people are talking about it. So I want to make sure that if there are any objections have been answered. Uh, now, another thing is I've waited for so long. Uh, so this aired in October, it's now July, so seven months in now. Uh, 
why am I making the video now? I've given ample time to the Muslim apologists to come up with the best of the best reputations. And of all the ones I saw, Farid's was touted as one of the best ones. And it had 30 to 50,000 views. Now, uh, I want to refute this because I want people to A, realize the, the, the quality of the discourse that the Dawagandists Dawa propagate, like Farid. B, uh, people who lie need to be exposed because people like Farid, they're ruining the discourse, not only for us, they're ruining other Muslims from having meaningful discussions on these topics. Because what ends up happening is if a Muslim sees Farid's videos and he just comes up to me or anybody and starts talking using Farid's points, 20, 30 minutes in, as you can see, they'll be realizing, oh, we were lied to. And not only that, it makes the Muslims look bad and terrible. And just for the sake of honesty, for the sake of discourse, for the sake of honest discussion, we need to have these uh, these ideas. And obviously, also another thing I want to highlight is Farid's nature, and I'm going to go back to Yasser Qadi because he's coming up. Is, uh, Farid is the same guy who leaked Yasser Qadi's emails about the Quran, the whole in the Quran narrative. In fact, if I remember correctly, as per Muhammad Hijab, the question about the blank uh, Sahifa was given to him by Farid, spoon-fed to him by that as well. We've gone into this in detail, but what you're seeing here, like Yasser Qadi said, this neo-Madkhali guy, Farid, his intent isn't to look for truth. It never was. He's a dishonest uh, person from the get-go. I mean, talking about leaking emails and then the kind of responses he makes. It's just that we need to bring back... Uh, and honesty back into the, the conversation to move forward. Because uh, otherwise we're just polluting polluting the, the, the environment. So Muslims and ex-Muslims can't have a proper conversation. Yeah, that's it. So you want to continue then? Yeah, uh, let's see. All right. So this one's funny. Karb uh, equals pain. But he misses the point on synonyms altogether. So Farid claims that he has never heard anyone claim Karb means pain. But that was never the actual argument. Uh, many other descriptions of Muhammad receiving revelation clearly imply the sensation of pain. Do you think that Muhammad was having a blissful experience when he was seized by a severe feverish state and then he sweated and snorted? Guy, come on, it's implied that he was in a state of pain. Uh, other words like Muraha clearly imply the meaning of pain as well, which was mentioned in slide 96 that Farid already omitted. And then on the right side, we will see what Yasser Qadi says. So let's watch Farid's uh, little snippet first. We are going to first, the top part is from uh, Sira bin Kasir. Uh, the Messenger of God would become in pain when revelation came to him and his face would look very serious. According to one account, this wording should be, and his eyes would close, and we recognize this in him. Now, in the bottom, this hadith, like I showed you earlier, has been part of the presentation, the initial one, this one the whole time. He felt this rigor. He felt the same rigor. He felt relief. The word is Qurb. Let's go to the next slide and show you again the meaning from the dictionary, just so we know who is lying. That's the word. It says extreme mental or physical suffering to torment severe physical or mental suffering caused by extreme pain, uh, pain, suffering from a continuous dull pain cause of suffer severe mental and physical pain. At this time, it's pretty clear that Farid is the one who's lying, manipulating my argument and trying to seem like he's he's. He's doing something, but no, he actually isn't. Now, in all my life, I've never seen anyone claim that the term karb 
means pain. Now, personally, I have no idea what this is based on, this information. All righty. Uh, so uh, he said that what the hell is this based on? And he claimed that God does not equal pain. Well, let's see what Yasef Gadi says. This is from slide 51 from part one. We showed this as usual, but he did not include it in his response. Uh, let's go. That Jibreel is indicating that you are about to be inspired with this heavy message. We're going to inspire you with a heavy message. It's not going to be easy. And it was physically painful for the Prophet to receive wahi. And we'll talk about that in a while. It was physically painful. It was a, uh, 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 an energy draining experience to be inspired by Jibreel was not an easy task. And Allah says, we're going to give you a heavy revelation. So as you see clearly here that uh, Yasser Qadi was saying it was physically painful for the Prophet to receive wahi. It was physically painful. It was energy draining. He said this twice. Farid on the other time, like, I don't know what this is based on. I have no clue what's going on. Because he's looking for the literal meaning of God equals to pain. Now what we actually need to go and see is the next slide where we realize this is a full, complete uh drama where Farid in his own video when he's talking about the Buraha shows this Shiddatul Aza okay by what does Shiddatul Aza mean was harmed hurt injured was molested annoys harmed hurt injured molested suffered injury from a harm and injury now you're trying to tell me that that does not imply the sensation of pain or it does not literally translate to pain guy you're refuting yourself here on the right side again, the state of being harmed, damaged by something, harm, hurt, injury. He was in shadid uh, pain or shadid hurt, harm by the wahi. That clearly implies the meaning of pain. Gets worse is this is the slide Farid hit where uh, other places where pain is mentioned. Uh, as I see, extreme mental or physical suffering on the word buraha. And even in his screenshot that he was trying to refute me with like i said before he ended up refuting himself he showed this so as you see it's complete nonsense now also there's like i said other words in other places it is translated as pain as well and you see here uh sometimes it comes like the ringing of a bell it is uh it being the most painful right here and then here we have he underwent the agony that used to seize him. So obviously you would understand that agony implies pain. It's a synonym, right? But no, Farid does not understand that. Let's see. Now, if we return to classical dictionaries, we don't find them using the word karb in this way. It's never used to be referring to pain. Even a modern dictionary like Lane's lexicon doesn't refer to karb as pain. Now, Dr. Jalaluddin is someone that loves to use Lane's lexicon. However, when he did not find the term karb meaning pain in Lane's lexicon, he switched over to a modern dictionary in order to find someone somewhere that referred to a word in the way that he wanted it to be referred to. In any case, here are some scans from some classical Arabic dictionaries. And as you can see, the term karb is never referring to Elam or pain. So the whole straw man he creates is he's looking for karb, karb with the translation literally Elam. Guy, get yourself together. In your own video, you show Lane's lexicon, as you can see, sorrow, grief, distress, or affliction occurring. He became afflicted, distressed, or oppressed by sorrow or grief. 
grief that affects the breath or respiration that takes away the breath. Uh, anxiety, solicitude, or disquietude of the mind. Grief, anxiety that presses heavily upon the heart. Both signify anxiety, grief, or intense grief. These are words from his video from Lane's Dictionary. Did you know how simple this was? If you go to the next slide, we find out that, guess what? Just the word distress, the synonym of it is pain. The, the lack of uh, ability of this guy to reason and then making this wild goose chase about looking for the word karab to mean alam is absurd. As you see, distress from Lane's lexicon with karb would imply anguish, suffering, pain, agony. And here, definite by karb means agonize to cause pain. Again, on this one, EnglishArabicOrg.com, synonyms. Agony, pain, torment, torture, suffering, distress. Verb, suffer great pains or distress. Again, here, distress, anguish, trouble, ache, and again, here as well. Uh, there are Arabic to English synonym and dictionaries here, and then there's just the English ones. So I showed you from both sides that that's what it means. The fact that he's so pedantic and he's a literalist, like Wahhabis tend to be, that he he's saying that the karb has to have the word alam, but that anguish or affliction does not imply the meaning of pain. It's, it's completely absurd. So he then says, why did I use a modern dictionary? <laughs> Because people like Farid do not understand synonyms. Hence, I brought an explicit source to avoid this. Besides, it's a straw man to hunt for the literal meaning of karb to be physical pain, as many other terms already imply the feeling of pain. This was affirmed by Yasir Qadi. Farid loves misdirections by making mountains out of molehills to sue his web of lies, completely distorting the opponent's argument. And as you can see what just happened, uh, now, what ends up happening next is he completely rejects Almani dictionary. And little does he know that academics use Almani dictionary and view it as somewhat reliable. So let's just find out. Yeah, and, and hold on. You know what? The, the irony uh, you kind of pointed out before, but look at the topic of his video Refutation 101 Crash Course. <laughs> It's, it's more it's, like how to not refute 101. Exactly. How to not ever make a reputation crash course. Uh, stop lying without lies. It's not that, yeah. you know? uh, we're going to finish this this pain and this gut point and then we'll call it a day because we have so many more. This is going to go up to 100 slides. We're only on 45. Uh, but let's watch what he said. Means pain. Now, personally, I have no idea what this is based on, this information that they've dug up from this website. More importantly, why would I care about a website that's not referencing its material? I don't know who worked on the website. I don't know who put this data in this website. It's just a website. Is a lexicographer working on this website? Is it a linguist? I don't know who's putting this information in there. Now, if we return to class. Now, this is where you see this guy is not only ignorant, he's so arrogant that he doesn't want to do the research to find out what Almani Dictionary is and what scholars have said about it. He just says, I, I don't like it, therefore I dismiss it. I don't know who it is, therefore it's probably fake. And he puts himself as some big scholar or authority, but he's not. Now, let's find out what actually uh, we see. Almani Dictionary is a favorite for university students and has been shown to do reliable translations. Uh, the point of me showing these papers, if you do want to get into it, you can sit down, read in detail, they'll compare, they'll give scores with the Reverso Context Dictionary, Almani Dictionary compared with humans, 
and whatnot. But the point is that academics have studied it. Uh, and as you see here, additionally, when the participants were asked about the Lacanic dictionary they regularly use, all mentioned using Almani, which is a comprehensive multilingual dictionary that provides translation between Arabic and several other languages. Why is a paper, an academic paper, written on it in the International Journal of English Linguistics? And this, uh, if you look at the author from the Saudi Arabia, King Saud Un University in Riyadh, so this is a very Muslim <laughs> article, right? Look at this. The top source, according to the study's participants, was Almani, which is a free electronic multilingual dictionary, and the second one was the Cambridge one. A point is, uh, it is used extensively by in, in academic institutions. It's been studied by academics, and they've studied it, and they vouch for it. Now, on the next slide, here is a master's thesis submitted to York University in Canada, which employs the use of Almani dictionary multiple times. If academics deem it worthy of use to be acceptable in a master's thesis, why would Farid be somebody who we should listen to when he's just dissing it out of the guys, an unreliable dictionary? If Farid, you don't know about Almani dictionary, maybe you read about it, learn about it. If academics are using it, I'm pretty sure I can use it. The only issue here is you're not the one aware. As you can see, it literally uh, lets it almani.com. You can see it gives the link, the literal URL in the bibliography so many times. Anyways, let's go forward. Here we have another study on Almani dictionary slash thesaurus, uh, a novel pipeline for Arabic synonym extracting, right? And we evaluated automatically extracted synonyms by comparing them with Almani uh, Arabic synonym thesaurus. Uh, they used Almani as a gold standard, okay? If if it was a nobody and it was unreliable and a useless dictionary, it wouldn't end up being a gold standard to be evaluated against. You can go into detail about the scores, what they give them, and what's better, reverse was better than Almani. In certain contexts, reverse was better, in certain Almani is better or whatnot. But the point that you can see clearly is Farid is absolutely clueless when he said that what Almani dictionary is. In fact, here is another one. And this one, this paper, they're showing you screenshots. The same kind of screenshots I put in my presentation. Now, are you going to yell at the academics for using Almani Dictionary as well or doing studies on it? Come on, guys. you got to raise your standards when you make reputation videos. Farid is a type of guy that thinks he's an academic and behaves like one, but does the exact opposite things academics do. It's it's laughable. It's uh, I'm never going to engage with this guy ever again. I'm going to finish this series and whatnot, uh, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, but I mean, it's just it's flabbergasting the amount of lies he comes mm -hmm. up with. Um, uh, we can do this uh, this one more uh, lie where he says the hadith isn't sahih, but in fact, Abu Hanifa's students are calling it fully sahih. Let's watch. And that's because I'm someone who's consistent. These people will actually use a report against Islam. Oh my God, I'm sorry I had to pause it there because when he said this is because I'm consistent, <laughs> it's the biggest joke. I've, if you see it this far, like this guy is the the opposite of consistency. He's he's the opposite of integrity. He's, the, he's literally the opposite of a truth seeker. But anyways, let's carry on. Even if it includes a miracle. Now, here's another example. Majma az Zawaid, fainting upon revelation. When the revelation descended upon the, him, he would be fainting and swooning. What's funny is the transmitters of this narration are reliable. It says, uh, 
it's got two chains and one of them has a reliable chain sahih chain perfect now check this guy out he's even authenticating the report yo by the way you forgot to highlight the part where he says so no he's not authenticating the report he's actually weakening the report due to the anonymity of one of the narrators so that's how by looking at the context of the grading we can actually arrive at what the author is trying to say. But now let's examine the actual text. The report states that Ali bin Abi Talib is at home when the Prophet, peace be upon him, asks him if he had prayed, Asr. He said, no, O Messenger of Allah. So he supplicated to Allah and the sun came back. He said, I saw the sun come out after it had set so that I could pray Asr. The afternoon prayer. Now, this individual, Dr. Jalal al-Din, actually wants you to accept this report because it has evidence for epilepsy. Yes, he actually wants you to accept the sun returned. Okay, he's, he's actually trying to sell you a supernatural hadith in order for you to accept his evidence for epilepsy. You see how so, uh like you see here, he says that we're trying to sell you a report that is uh, that has a miracle in it. If if you were to view our nuance and how we approach the Islamic corpus, it was clearly implied that when we quote Islamic hadith, it doesn't mean that everything that is in the hadith is supposed to be authentic as well by virtue of us just quoting it. If somebody quotes something from Bukhari or Muslim to imply some historicity about Muhammad, it does not mean they have to except all the other hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, it's, it's absurd. Uh, then he also says that this hadith is in fact weak. It's not. In fact, what I went, I'm like, you know what? I'll pull out the whole chain, as you can see here. He would faint, and then uh, it says uh, that it came out after the Salat of Asr. And as you can see here, all these people are thika, accepted and whatnot, their names, everything's written here. Uh, to make matters worse for Farid lying, you go on the next one. Here we have another one, which is from uh, Al-Musnad al-Sahih. And he talks about Gharabat uh, al-Shams and it coming out back again. And then here it clearly said from Tabrani, and it says, Haza hadith hasan, faqad hasanuhu tahabi or one of the scholars, right? And then later, the same second version of the hadith is And right down here, he saw the uh, sun come out again. He's a big Hanafi uh, scholar who authenticated it. And on the right side here, we see the same thing. So the sun came out after it had risen. Uh, and whatnot. But you can see that there are scholars that have indeed rated it sahih, but Farid wants you to only know one aspect of the nuance view. Again, he just wants to create this whole weird lie. Now, obviously, it doesn't, like we discussed earlier, and we'll get to later on about miracles as well, that when you are discussing sources that are hundreds of years after the fact the event had happened no academic no historian would take the miracle report as valid it's absurd to suggest that even people would laugh and mock you if you were to say that that oh you got to take tabarani's hadith 200 years ago the primary source uh, or miracles in those hadith are supposed to be historically valid nobody would 
Uh, we will get to that. We will. There is. If anybody wants to understand what I'm talking about, you can go listen to Dr. Richard Carrier's uh, lecture, a detailed lecture on historicity of miracles, and Dr. Bart Ehrman. They explain this in the context of uh, the New and the Old Testament, and that basically all the logic applies back onto the Islamic corpus as well. So you understand that Farid has no clue how the historical method works. Let's go next. Ah, so uh, Farid seems to uh, act surprised about, you know, the sun rising back and it's a big deal. How is uh, Gondol selling you this hadith? But Farid, why are you putting up this act of acting surprised? You already believe that the sun physically stopped moving in the sky for some guides in jihad long time ago. And it's in Sahih Muslim. He said to the sun, thou art subservient and thou stop it for me. It was stopped till Allah granted a victory. So you're trying to tell me that the rotation of the earth stopped so this guy could go finish up his war. You already believe this. So the fact that the sun coming back shouldn't be this big point. Oh my God, he's trying to sell you this big weird thing. Astaghfirullah, we don't, we're so consistent. We would never believe anything happening with celestial bodies is miracles. I mean, right, on the right side here, we clearly see the Muhammad and the splitting of the moon and Sahih books as well. This is just absurd where he creates this facade of being acting surprised. He puts up this act where how dare he suggest that the sun came back. Dude, you already believe in weirder and more absurd stuff than that. All uh, right. Uh, I think we'll stop here today. Um, it's been uh, it's been quite about an hour, 50 minutes. And then we have, I'll just back out of here. I'll show you how much more we have. Uh, so we're on slide number 53. We got quite a few slides coming up. I'm not going to play them all for you. And then there's a lot more that I'm going to add. We have all the way up to 70, already done 71. But uh, yeah, so we're going to end it here. And we're going to take some, uh, some questions and answers or some comments. And we will be back in the next series to continue. All righty, guys. So, yeah, that was a great stream. Um, I think you've basically done everything to show this guy has a pattern of dishonesty. Mm -hmm. He's a pattern of cutting out things, straw manning, cherry picking, picking on the weakest points, trying to make it look like he's actually destroyed the argument when all he's done is he's kind of like gone to the extremities. It's kind of the same perspective or approach that you find with some of these other people like Sabu Ahmed with Darwin delusions where they they know I mean he knows you can't defeat evolution or Darwinism so they go and they pick on these very subtle nuanced particulars and try to make people have doubt about the main body of ideas that nobody disputes I mean basically nobody mm -hmm. but that's what they do that's how they do these things because what do you do when you're in the wrong you don't actually have a good argument you don't have I mean, you've actually unearthed mountains of evidence. So in order to move that mountain, you need a, an equally strong mountain. You can't just you know, poke little holes here and there, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, uh, I'm just looking at some of the comments. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, so by the end, like you said, that this is such a surgical, uh, detailed, thorough refutation where we're unmasking each lie as it goes along that uh, at the end of it, like, there's nothing for him to stand upon. Like it's, it's it's absurd. We talked about this in the initial series where he lies and he just lies so much. It's just nauseating. Uh, but yeah, we I'm gonna uh, add a lot more slides. We're gonna not only refute just the first video that he made. We're gonna refute the video about 
Muhammad's mother having epilepsy? Did the Sahaba have epilepsy? Did the, uh, the, the, the camel and the dead Vedic fact? We'll all talk about the heaviness. Uh, and he had another video as well. Um, I don't remember the top of my head, but I have copies of them somewhere. And I'll keep adding them uh, uh, in the slides. So this might end up being more than 100 slides. Mm -hmm. And this is just to show you that it's not just for Farid, this thing. This thing is for all the Muslims to watch so they can apply this to their favorite apologists and realize that not what everything Farid tells you is, is the truth. Or people like Muhammad Hijab or like you said, Sabur, they're all indulging in these kind of activities. And if you actually ever sit down, you can just easily unmask them. I mean, Daniel Hakikaju being one, another one as well. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I think he needs to up the quality. I mean, if this is the best he could do, if this is actually the best he could do, then Muslims should just be disappointed in him. <laughs> that and the, that he touted himself by you know making these arguments and stuff, but it's just a, a platter of lies, right? Uh, at the end, I want to also say that uh, there are some mistakes that I also made in my what twenty-hour series. I'm also a human, of course. So we will, uh, at the end of the series, I will make, uh, we have slides dedicated to where I also point out some of the mistakes that I committed for uh, some issues that arose. And there's nothing wrong owning up to them because none of them were pivotal to the main argument where I'll get the name of a book wrong or misidentify one Shia scholar as being the, the wrong sect, whereas we still have 10 other narrations from the Shia point of view that still substantiate the same point. So we'll get to that. and. Uh, Let's see uh, how and when we come back for part two. Uh, do you want to take any callers or anything like that? Any other questions? Uh, I'm uh, I think we only have like five minutes left. So mm -hmm. rather just end off on a nice, nice ending. Uh, there's no comments uh, that really uh, on the topic. There's just a general conversation being going, going on. We had uh, one one angry uh, supporter of Robert Spencer <laughs> on, <laughs> come in the chat and get mad um, about Harris Sultan said that abusing Harris Sultan and Nuria, who we are both uh, big supporters of. So, you know, that was obviously we're not going to stand for that. We're not going to take any of that nonsense on here. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was just conversation about a few other things, uh, side discussions. But on the topic in particular, there's nothing really in regard to that. Um, so I think we're good. Uh, Arabic translated memes, uh, thanks again for all your support, brother. Uh, if I go back to the point I made at the beginning, it's exhausting or pointless arguing with Farid when in the end he cares more about faith than facts. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that was the point of this stream is to show that, you know, as Messianic apostate says, Farid is intellectually bankrupt. We're trying mm -hmm. to show that this is, this is not, you know, an honest actor you know, this person's not being charitable at all. And what they're doing is dishonest. And it's not, they're not responding. They're just like making, it's not even to call it a response is a joke, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. you can see like, if you wanted to, like I put the, the timestamps there, I sit down and watch this clip and go, he like takes snippets. He doesn't indicate it's part <laughs> three, part one. And one thing notice in his reputation, the one thing I do, watch my clothes, each different part, I on purpose wore different clothes or shirts. So when somebody does try to stitch them together, you can't, you'll notice it. And if you go to Farid's videos, you will notice that. He'll take a 10 second clip for part two of the series, stitch it with part five or part three. And it's 
absolutely bonkers. We are gonna, in the next few slides, in part two, we'll cover where he takes a 10 minute segment and he edits into one minute long. And he edits in a way where it flows like I'm speaking just for one minute. And that is the absurdity of the lies and the level he's gonna go stoop down to. Uh, like I said, it's just gonna keep getting worse. One thing I would request Farid, if he has any fairness, is that because I allowed him to finish his whole eight, nine videos, and I didn't interrupt his refutations by suddenly making my own one while he's still doing it, because I wanted to give him a fair chance to make his full point, which might take one, two, three, four, five videos. Now, what I would expect and hope that he doesn't start making videos right away. He honors that and lets me finish my series so you can see that I already might be addressing most of his points that he might be, again, making a video. So it's not to waste anybody's time and it's easier to follow the discourse as well. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to unless he wants more views. And it seems like he's scared now. Like, I mean, he re-uploaded all the videos on a second channel. <laughs> um, and uh, to be honest, like you said, we're not going to keep engaging with someone that's not engaging in good faith right if you're not yeah. going to actually be honest document or at least timestamp properly link to the specific parts i mean because there's a lot of content that you need to at mm -hmm. least do that mm -hmm. and the amount of time and effort that goes into making something like this maybe what we can do is going forward we'll do another series on a different topic like we did a great one circus of islam was great the aisha mm -hmm. scandal um the aisha scandal the, the aisha yeah scandal plus her age mm -hmm. issue all of those things were amazing content so Maybe it's better if we just keep doing that rather than going back and forth mm -hmm. with guy like yeah. you said, right? Yeah. I'll just finish this series just so people know. Uh, and I'm not going to address all the videos he's made against us just because it's just kind of pointless. I'll show you the Epileptic Prophet series, and that will be enough to understand that this whole guy's methodology is just built upon lies. Uh, and that should be enough to get a clear picture of what this guy does. Uh, and I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know what, if it was one or two mistakes that he made, where he mistakenly misunderstood, okay, you can give them uh, the benefit of the doubt. But what you've seen so far, and you will continue to see, is this is not benefit of the doubt. This is purpose-driven, ma malicious intent uh, fraud happening here. This is straight up, like people said, is intellectual fraud. And it's not like he's doing it unknowingly. He knows it what he's doing. And he's doing it on purpose. And that is criminal if you want to ask anybody who cares about the discourse. Uh, but uh, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, we're going to have more uh, uh, episodes to this. I, we might have one more, two more. We'll see. I'll see how the response to this one is. And I mean, obviously, I don't want to have to watch his videos and sit down <laughs> and make these slides. It's quite tedious because, I mean, I, I can all, already imagine once you guys found out the lies that I just showed to you, for me to sit through and then dissect them and write about them, it's even more, uh, let's just say, stressful or distressing or nauseating and frustrating is the word I would use. But anyways, uh, that is it from my side. And we will, I'll be back uh, with uh, part two of uh, Takia of Farid's response. And if anybody wants to uh, argue about, well, Takia is not a concept in Sunni Islam, we know that. We obviously know that. This is a sarcastic pun on the idea of Takiya, because as you can see, even though Takiya doesn't exist as a valid and acknowledged concept in, in Sunni Islam, Muslim apologists like Farid constantly engage what would be called Takiya if it were to be there. 
but that's it from my side. Anything from Samir? And let's yeah, that's it. Uh, and thanks, everyone. Uh, it was a wonderful two-hour stream. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to do this again on the weekends. Or otherwise, we'll try to find time during the weekdays. Lots of people here, and I'm sure you guys loved it. Thank you for all the support and uh, super chats. And uh, apologize for having to set the chat mm -hmm. to uh, subscribers only. You guys understand why I did that. <laughs> it's too much spam in the conversation i'll probably just leave it on subscri subscriber only chat now um if you want to subscribe and unsubscribe you can do so but the there's just too many people that are trying to ruin the chat for others so whoever's interested are actually subscribers so we'll we'll just leave it like that um okay and thank you to the mods as well and uh, everyone that's supporting on patreon and um and that's it we'll see you guys uh, hopefully next week or the week after and remember without lies islam dies <laughs> exactly bye now